What is up, everybody? I am Chris Sinclair. And I am Karina Martinez. Who are you filling in for, Karina? I am filling in for Drew Garrison. Apparently he has better things to do, like wooing his wife on their anniversary. That's really sweet. (laughs) We are a couple of self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience, reaching back to the days of washing dishes and filling coffee cups and listening to blue-collar woes. All the way to owning multiple businesses and being some of the dopest bartenders in the world. Our goal is to walk you through today's most interesting alcohol industry headlines while sipping amazing drinks as we do it. Karina. Hey. What Couple headlines we're covering in May. Fresno City Council is considering revoking alcohol licenses from bad actors and using them to incentivize grocery stores into underrepresented areas. We also have Jägermeister, who's launching a call to action to save the remaining 15 lesbian bars in the United States. But before we get to that... Chris, what are you drinking? I am drinking some uh, Bordiga Vermouth di Torino Bianco. It is lovely. I feel like that's fitting, since I think that's the most ordered item for me from good bottle is it that makes sense it's um <laughs> i i love this vermouth so much and i i feel like uh you and i share an affinity for drinking vermouth just by itself yeah it's already got a lot going on yeah uh what i think what makes bordiga so fun is that uh uh a lot of the botanicals that are in it are like hand harvested from the hills around the winery. And uh, that's kind of fucking cool. We did a desert run earlier in the year. Uh, and it was all camping, middle of nowhere, summer. And I think we went through in probably about 10 days and there was four of us. I think we went through about four bottles of that just with that and soda water. Tobo Chico oh, that's, that's perfect. Where, uh, which desert did you go to? Uh, we went down to, from Mojave all the way out to Lake Powell. Oh, that's awesome. I, yeah. um, I have yet to really experience desert. Uh, I mean, high desert. Yes. Which is like, you know, Denver awesome. and like tundra ish stuff, but, but not, desert. not like, um, sand rock heat desert i've never really experienced that i have this like this odd desire to find a a house in the middle of nowhere uh and just like go cook and drink and sit underneath stars in a desert somewhere yeah so one of my best friends jackie she was very much of the same same mind where she wanted to experience that had but never experienced that hot desert and for her birthday we actually took her down to the mojave desert and we hiked the kelso sand dunes but for stars in the very corner of nevada right where california utah uh, nevada and oregon all meet there's a place called sheldon nature preserve and it's a dark sanctuary so it pretty much has no light pollution uh, and there's a specific area, it's called Massacre Rim. If you're interested, look it up. The name is very fitting. Um, but it's the dark sanctuary, and it's you ominous. can go some meteor showers. And it's absolutely phenomenal. I gotta know what 
why it's called uh, uh, Massacre Ridge. Uh, Massacre Rim is uh, called that because it was the last Native American stronghold against the U.S. military. And the U.S. military was victorious. Um, Yeah, and if you, you are kind of down, surrounded by this entire rim, and you're kind of sunken down into the desert just a little bit, and yeah, the seeing the Milky Way rise into the horizon for the entire night it was really, really spectacular. Wow, that's so cool. Well, what are you drinking? Um, I am drinking Carpano Antica on ice in a shaker. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, that's fitting. I didn't. <laughs> you couldn't grab a drink, and it was what was on the drying board, and so that's what that's what it got plopped into. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Carpano Antica. What what about Carpano do you love? I feel like for me, it's one of those things that I know almost anywhere that I'm going to eat or drink is going to have. And I feel like I took an affinity to drinking with it because everything about it can pair well with food to almost anything you're you're eating. So going out and having that either before or after during a meal has just hit the spot. And I was actually eating ramen and then started drinking this. And I love that, like the berries and the zest, I always put like a lemon or an orange in there as well. Um, Just all of those berries and the really nuanced, almost, I want to say like baking spice, even though. I feel like that's the culmination of flavors and not anyone independently. Um, Yeah. yeah. And it kind of just hits all of my taste bud factors from smooth to berry to like the right, perfect acidity to having some extra layers meld into almost like a warm, soothing baking spice. Yeah. I think, I think that exactly what you're saying is one of the reasons why it's like one of the most preferred uh, sweet vermouths on the market. It just it's spicy, it's uh viscous, it like it holds up really well in a cocktail. You're you're gonna be able to taste it, but it's not overpowering. Yeah, the body on it just over ice, I think I prefer I prefer to most other labels. Well, that's damn cool that we're both drinking vermouth. That's uh that's fun. Cool. Well now it's time for our opinion on facts that we've heard from reputable sources. The Fresno City Council policy to revoke some alcohol licenses and then give them to uh, to new grocery stores seems to be underway. Uh, there's a few city council members out of the California city of Fresno that are discussing this as a means for, for two reasons. They can uh, reduce the amount of of alcohol licenses that are in action within city limits, as well as fill in uh, food deserts within, within Fresno. Um, what, what I found really interesting in, in this story was that uh, uh, apparently Fresno has a new, a new city ordinance that requires 
uh, grocery stores or or new stores to purchase two liquor licenses and retire one of them in order to in in order to get rid of ex- excess licenses or or I guess an oversaturation of liquor licenses within Fresno uh, City and the county, which seems odd to me because when we were opening up um, Good Bottle, we had to we had to jump through hoops just to get our single um, uh, license, and and uh, the city is very and county is incredibly strict on how many licenses that they uh, that they release in a year and it's, it's all based on on the amount of uh, uh, people the the population size uh for the county what it, what are your thoughts of uh when you hear a story like this karina well i respect that they're trying to incentivize business to fill food deserts first and foremost i think that is something that the city city should be looking at however it sounds like the city mismanaged how many licenses were going out. And now the new entrepreneurs or business owners or license holders are having to eat the cost. So it sounds like the city issued all of these licenses and maybe what is no longer appropriate for the current climate. And they've made taxes off of off of sales of those businesses and now they're asking new entrepreneurs to eat the cost of buying two licenses and i don't know exactly how licenses work in fresno city but being here in sacramento and in shasta county and looking at licenses there i don't know how small business owners are going to be able to even afford you know they can barely afford a single license and having it be double and then not even being able to benefit off of that second one that they're retiring doesn't really seem fair or or very supportive of smaller businesses. It would yeah, be more it's, supportive it's, of a commerce or a chain. It seems, seemed a little um, silly to me. I mean, I mean the, the reason that, uh, that Fresno is looking at uh, revoking licenses from bad actors, right? Like these are, these are liquor stores that I apparently consistently um, sell to minors that, um, you know, don't adhere to their, uh, to the conditions of their, uh, of their uh, conditional use permits. Um, so a, I I'm of the mind, like, well, those guys fucking deserve it. You know? Yes. If you don't play by the rules, you deserve to get shut down. You know, one or two times you get a slap on the hand, fine. But if you keep fucking up, then you're you're a problem, and and you're not you're not playing responsibly like the rest of us are. Um, I think it's silly that that the city has a two license ordinance, just like like you said. That's that's ridiculous. I think this is their way of sort of um, closing that gap is by taking those licenses away from the the bad actors and giving them to grocery stores that fit that that need in the food desert right so that way they don't have to acquire two or this like this fills their need of acquiring the two right so then they can just retire one of those um it seems like a a silly hmm it seems like that like like a little bit of government overreach to me um which has led them to this point. What, 
would you would you concur with that or or do you have a different thought um i don't know if overreach is the right word but definitely profiting from it because if that's the case right like the other the other question that stands is what is considered a bad actor what are what are the steps and process of deciding who's a bad actor is it just someone who's not you know not fulfilling rent as what it could be if it was a new tenant or is it people that have multiple infractions against them and if that's the case if there really is that many that many bad actors going on and they have multiple offenses then why aren't the city just revoking them and retiring themselves instead of having other people in the area buying them yeah that's i i i completely concur with that i think it's um a, a little ridiculous that, that they're using uh, the need for additional licensing as a means to revoke from someone else when it is could just easily be handled by um, by just slapping hands every once in a while and holding people accountable. Yeah, they're making it more I, bureaucratic I, than just owning up to to the to the black and white of it. Yeah, I I know ABC um, is extremely um, underfunded and shorthanded. They uh, they usually don't have the ability to to really crack down on a lot of places unless um, unless they get uh, something gets reported to them, um, which is actually reminds me of of, uh, of Chico because I, I hear that happens a lot up in Chico, and I know you have you have good experience with Chico because that's where you're from or you're from Shasta County from Shasta County Chico's in Butte County and I'm from Reading. Oh, well, son of a bitch. I <laughs> fucked that one up. Didn't I? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I actually, you know, I don't really know much about Chico other from other than from kind of down the pipeline. I know, uh, Reading is kind of its own world and the population is a lot smaller and so are drinking establishments, but, I know up there that underage drinking is something that they're constantly monitoring and looking for and definitely put money into programs to catch that. For all of those listening, the reason that I, uh, I, uh, I fucked that one up is because it's all north of here and there's not very much else that's north of here. Uh, it's just sort of a desolate wasteland of uh, not much. Beautiful you know, rivers and, and Mount Shasta. Yeah, just gorgeous mountains park. and meth heads and hey, beautiful say, highways. Nature, it's beautiful. Population is it's hit or miss. Obviously, I'm jaded and I'm a terrible human being, and I'm just talking shit. Uh, that's and I'm just trying to cover up for me being a jackass and drinking. <laughs> just clumping it all together. Yep, that's right. Um, <laughs> I, I think that dealing with, uh, do you want to explain what a food desert is for, for those who might not know? A food desert is basically just looking at areas and looking at how the population growth is or where it's, where it currently is at and seeing how much access they have to food and so that can be within a city limit and having areas that it takes a great deal of transportation or effort to get to something as simple as a grocery store it can be to other areas where they don't produce a lot of agricultural products so 
the logistics of transporting fresh produce in be by truck or ship or whatever and the logistics and the sales tax of that. So basically just areas that it is not convenient to get fresh produce or nutritious food in a timely or sufficient manner. Yeah, that was the perfect explanation. I, food deserts are uh, when I'm when I'm having intellectual conversations with with folks about commerce and let's say um, uh, capitalism, which has been coming up a lot lately. Uh, the concept of a uh, of a food desert is something that I I will often bring up to counter. Uh, you know the the capitalism is God sort of um, mentality because it's it directly flies in the face of meeting meeting all the needs that are that are necessary for for a community to exist um but it still meets the needs of capitalism which is which is you know we only exist where we can make money um which i think is silly especially when you're talking about that you know the necessity of food uh, being for, for everyone. I'm sure someone out there is going to have a, a, a great uh, comeback to that, but um, it, it's, it's something that just, I, I think about quite a bit. <laughs> All right. This is a fun one for me. Uh, I was very, very excited. Jägermeister has launched uh, a, a uh, forgive me, uh, a new program called Save the Night Initiative. Uh, it's an ongoing charity program uh, that the brand launched in response to the pandemic to support bartenders and creatives working in the nightlife space. They have partnered with, um, forgive me here, I'm, I just lost my space, my space in my notes. Uh, they have partnered uh, with uh, Leah Delaria, uh, who is a comedian and a star on Orange is the New Black. And uh, and they are creating a, a documentary that is based around saving and shining light on the 15 remaining lesbian bars in the United States. Uh, as of the 1980s, there are 200 lesbian bars in the U S but over the last few decades, uh, the lot more of these queer safe spaces have been, have been shutting down in 2020. It was down to, uh, just, uh, just 20 lesbian bars. And now, now we're down to 15, uh, Jägermeister is, has worked with the, um, LGBTQ, plus community and they really feel it necessary to shine a light on this. What, what are your, um, what hits you first about this story? Honestly, the pairing between save the night, focusing on lesbian bars and Jaeger taking the lead. Um, yeah, I would have, I would have expected, other brands before that and i'm i'm honestly really stoked to see that jägermeister is choosing this to be their initiative and kind of kind of launch on that platform obviously our industry has taken massive hits and 
unemployment levels, mental health issues, and seeing our friends and our loved ones or people we admire having to shut their doors. Um, a hard one that I saw the other day was Pock Pock. That's right. Um, yeah, Pock Pock up up in up in Portland. Up in Portland, right? And I feel like for Sacramento, the one more national level bar event that we kind of communally do is Portland Cocktail Week, and that was kind of always always a destination for that. So, you know, that's that's obviously something that hits close to home for us being close to Sacramento, but seeing Jaeger step up for communities that aren't necessarily heard, to see them that see communities that not a lot of people are taking specific interest in and seeing that I think bartenders and hospitality professionals in general are kind of feel not as included into society or, you know, the the climbing the corporate ladder type of deal. And then you start getting into other populations who are either minorities of whatever sort, whether it's LGBTQ+, plus, whether it's economic, whether it's racial, the list goes on. So I'm happy that it's... Jaegers is kind of stepping up and it's close to home to me. My first real bartending job was when I was going to school in San Diego and I worked in Hillcrest, which is predominantly a gay male district. And then right next door is a predominantly gay female district. And having that be kind of my first time behind a bar and that culture and that environment uh, in San Diego was really amazing. And I definitely want want those bars to stay around and have places to be able to seek refuge. What do you, what do you think is an iconic personality of, of a gay bar or a queer friendly bar or a queer bar? I, you know, forgive me. I I don't know the right way to, um, to label an establishment, but there's a, there's like a vibe that's different. What what do you think makes makes a space like that so um, enticing and then also comfortable? Well, I think that you see the rise in prominence of queer centric bars at a time when corporate America was thriving. So not only do you have a population that is kind of tucked away out of out of major public view. A lot of times it's very neighborhood specific um, or, you know, it's just, it's just not on the main strip. And so you go from places that are very buttoned up, very streamlined, very khaki, black shirt, white apron, whatever. And then you go to a queer centric bar and you have this whole population who are different by being able to, not necessarily have that corporate structure to it. Usually when you go in, it's very much more individual. People are able to wear whatever they want to wear within a certain parameter. They have more tattoos. They have more unique hairstyles or piercings. It also is a different type of hospitality. And I was talking about this the other week. Um, there's a diff- There's definitely a type of hospitality where you come in and you sit down and you're welcomed and it's warm and it's refreshing, but it's very much, this is how we do things here. 
And then there's different places where you walk into and it's warm and it's welcoming and it's refreshing and it's all of those things, but it's also like more, it's more focused on the guest interaction and seeing how they take up space and how they interact with the space and what they're excited about versus in trying to get someone to be super stoked into a very fitted mold. It's more accepting and it's more open and there's more usually diversity as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really interesting. I, um, I can't say that I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, but I would say that, um, that feels, that feels right. You know, um, when I lived in Oakland, I lived right around the corner from, uh, the, not around the corner. It was like three doors down from my house. Um, three door. It was uh, the white horse, which is the oldest gay bar in California. Um, and it was, it was my neighborhood bar. You know, I would, I would go in there. Uh, I, and, um, hang out and got to know all the bartenders, a lot of the regulars drink jello shots and, whatever else stuff that they had behind there. And it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and it was just became my, my neighborhood hangout, um, and go in there and play pool and dance around, listen to music. And it was super just, um, inviting, um, to anyone and everyone, um, with the exception of ironically, um, as this story, uh, lesbian nights, for whatever reason in, in that bar specifically lesbian, uh, the, the, the very specific lesbian nights that were there, which was like Monday and Tuesday were very specifically lesbian nights. And I think that that's fair. I think everybody deserves like their time and place. Um, but, but, uh, the clientele on those nights, uh, would let everybody know that if you weren't lesbian, you weren't really welcome into the bar on those nights. Yeah, that that's interesting too, and and that's that's kind of a bummer. Um, unorganized by the snug in Sacramento, there was a, a huge lesbian night out that was Facebook big invite, and a lot of people turned up. I want to say there was a good sixty five women there, and it was really incredible. And a gentleman walked in, walked up to the bar inquired about beer draft beers and then looked around and said maybe i should come back it looks like this this isn't i'm not the clientele that's supposed to be here no weird and it was really interesting to see how self-aware he was and to say it in a matter of complete respect and almost admiration Hmm. but also to have that conversation with him and be like this is a public bar in a public space. Like they didn't rent it out. It's not private. They're trying to interact with new bars and new communities as what was per the Facebook post. Yeah. Um, and if you're part of this community, you should probably stay and and make friends. And he did. And he probably stayed for three more beers and had a great time. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. So, yeah. So it's interesting to hear those, um, those differences and experiences but you know it is a lot of time it is time and place and for people to feel like they have have their space and have their time but it's also really cool to see when things are genuinely inclusive 
And I feel like that is easier to do when there are more places where more people feel welcome. And it's when you only have one night or one time where you feel like you can be yourself free of judgment, free of anxiety or stress of that nature, you become either maybe obsessive or territorial of it. Whereas if there's more spaces and it's more common and more accepting, then it's not as scarce, right? Like you're not having to fight for it. Yeah. You don't have to be, be defensive over it and, you know, in fear that it like, you know, just becomes, um, homogenized. I exactly. Guess. Yeah. You know, this, this story reminds me, uh, Drew and I reported on a story a little while ago about absolute, um, uh, leaning into, um, the women's sexuality, um, space mm-hmm. and they were, they were partnering with Lizzo and they were, they were planning on coming out with a bunch of advertisements that were about, uh, you know, sort of like pro uh, pro women's sexuality. Which I, yeah. I I find fascinating and and really interesting because oftentimes when we discuss um, alcohol and sexuality and uh, we we're often leaning towards sort of the negative side in a lot of, in a lot of stories. You know, we're talking about um, uh, impaired judgment. We're talking about rape. We're talking about um, you know people losing control of their senses or just being impaired. Uh, what I find really interesting in, in, in these two stories is two very prominent, um, liquor brands leaning, not, you know, leaning almost fearlessly. It would seem, although I'm sure that they were trepidatious in their own rights, um, into the world of sexuality, um, and booze. What, I'm curious as, as, you know, someone in this industry who, you know, who is hooked up with your fair amount of people, what, you know, what, what's your thought on this? You know, definitely for me, I, I think there's two sides to the same coin. You know, I, I think that people are allowed to let loose, you know, and that's not, not always a bad thing, but there's, there's a line to that. But I'm also white, straight male, right? So uh, I can only be so aware at at um, at any given time, right? Right. Um, well, I okay. So use like these two prominent brands leading hard into sexuality. This is nothing new. We've seen brands continually since essentially the beginning of advertisement lean hard into sexuality. It's just always been same race hetero relationships, right? So the the sexualization and the sexuality and the loss of inhibition and the social lubricator that alcohol is advertised to be has always been there. We're just seeing it being more encompassing and that is brash for major brands to be doing and representing. And I see... Jaeger taking on the lesbian front, which I feel like as far as funding, probably, and this is just a total guess and can completely be wrong, but probably gets less funding than 
homosexual males and, you know, bisexuality or anything else under that even gets less funding. But what I find really interesting is the absolute one is that women's sexuality and in promoting Lizzo, this is sexuality of an individual, not in a sexual relationship. This is sexuality of an individual, not of a lesbian bar that, yes, attracted to another. This is a very singular, solitary self-identity, which I find really cool and absolute because that varies in all of us. That's what creates the spectrum. That's what creates the fluidity. That's what creates the individual conversations without the attachment to another being. It's really what we are sitting with within ourselves within our own attractions, within our own insecurities, and so on. So I find that really interesting in a new turn, whereas, yes, Jaeger going into lesbian bars is just using sexual sexualization the way that it has before as far as people partnered. And I find that Jaeger taking a step out and doing this is really, really rad. And I think it's something that's not really talked about as much as other LGBTQ and bar conversations have gone so far. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I was shocked and appalled to find out that there were only 15 lesbian bars left in the United States. Like that's, that's an appalling number to me. Yeah. I, I, and I, I think we're lucky that we live in, in this little, um, you know, metropolis bubble where we, you know, we could find that if we wanted to, um, or, you know, maybe not a specifically lesbian bar, but we could definitely find a queer friendly bar, um, here in Sacramento. Um, and it's just, it, to me, that makes me really sad for a lot of people who need that, you know? And, and I, I think what, what we haven't said is that, uh, and we've sort of, beat around the bush a little bit which is bars are bars are necessary for a community you know it's a place where people get to go and relax and um and be themselves like you said um but they're they're a central location it's a it's a it's an iconic uh, uh com- community outpost right and and for there only to be 15 of these bars left in the u.s is i mean that's that's awful to me. I mean, that's, it's terrible. I think everybody deserves to have a place that they, that they can call their own. Right. I mean, that's, that's less, less than one for every two States. Yeah, exactly. Like if yeah. we put it into that perspective, right? Like significantly less. So yeah, finding, you know, and while that is a bummer, it's, the greater effects of it is what's what's even more heartbreaking It's like yeah it is a bummer that these establishments are so rare at this point but what does that say to the greater community in in the big picture of things is are there other places that aren't necessarily lesbian bars but still lesbian centric establishments and places of community or is it something that is lacking and there isn't a safe place at all? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great question. I I have one more for you and, and uh, you can feel free to decline to answer. But um, if, if from your perspective, uh, a, 
a liquor brand were to approach you and ask you how they could make their way into the into we'll say the pro sexuality movement of 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 brands what what would you tell them would be would be a positive move versus uh versus um sort of the the skeletons of the past um you know, I fortunately got to work with Shandon this year on their Pride campaign, which was really, really interesting because they basically reached out and found a group of six of us in varying parts, and they kind of asked us those questions. They didn't just say, this is what we're doing. Do you want to be a part of it? It was more of, "This is we want to support these communities, and we want to support this. How would you feel supported? What could we do? And so brands having those conversations with people that they're actually asking to represent them um, is really cool because I think it really does start with the conversation. Um, And for us, you know, it gave six people platforms to make drinks. It was nationally launched. They also made financial donations to charities that we felt passionate about um, and education. So that was really cool. Um, as far as a brand, but if we're talking about more, I really, I really, really respect the sexuality of the individual, because I think that in our society, there is a lot of codependency and there's a lot of codependency in a negative way that is, I think, perpetuated. And I think that having the time to kind of take pause And to feel uncomfortable with everything that this pandemic and election year and just economic crisis has presented and really find out where we individually stand morally, ethically, sexually, curiosity-wise, everything, and have it be more about that of the all-around health of the individual and not necessarily with being tethered to another person or another thing. Uh. And now, speaking of sexuality, Let's talk about those sexy bottles going to auction, everybody. <laughs> that was a that was a bad uh, that was a bad segue, and I uh, I apologize, but it it was entertaining for me. <laughs> so today we are discussing a very exciting bottle of rum. Uh, uh, Karina learned the rules of this game. Uh, uh, before we started recording, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to repeat them and familiarize people again, just in case you forgot from last week. So the goal is I, uh, one of us finds a dope, sexy bottle that, uh, that went to auction recently and, and came out and that was interesting. And we quiz each other just to see, you know, if we got the chops. If we uh, if we know kind of what we're looking at here. So this bottle that I have chosen is a Ron Bacardi Reserve 
This one was produced out of Mexico. It's a, a 750 uh, milliliters, and it is coming out of a, a column still, and it's uh, molasses space. It is the Bacardi Reserve 2015 special anniversary bottling. What do you think that this bottle went for? This price is right rules can't go over. No, 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 no. You could you could be close. <laughs> All right. Do I get to know what, where, or what site it auctioned from? Ooh, uh, as long as you don't go look it up, yes. Yeah, no, I'm not going to look it up. This came from Rum Auctioneer, and it it finished its auction um, in October. In October. Okay, this last October. Okay, yes. I'm going to go with five-year-old from Mexico. Um, I'm going to go with 172 $172. All right, let me tell you a little bit more about this. Produced in Mexico, this was uh, uh, spe- specially bottled for the 50th anniversary of Bacardi's operation on Bermuda. The Bacardi Reserve was first blended in 1980 by Manuel J. Oliver and remains part of the company's premium output to this day. I am going to also tell you um, that you are very, very low. Yeah. 50th anniversary. Yes. I'm going to go $1,230. Okay. (laughs) I have no idea, Chris. It's fine. You are closer. Uh, I will tell you that the winning bid for for this bottle was one thousand eight hundred and sixty two euro. Oh shit! How's that conversion looking these days? I don't know. I'm I'm actually literally trying to figure that out right now as we speak. <laughs> Let's see. Convert one thousand eight hundred. What did I say? One thousand eight hundred and what? Oh, Does it Chris. matter after that? Eight hundred sixty two. And that comes out to, as of today, $2,170.15. Damn. That's an expensive bottle of rum. How many bottles were produced or were bottled? How many bottles were bottled? You know, I don't know. I was trying to find that. um, And honestly, I, I couldn't figure it out. The uh, the rum auctioneer doesn't have that information on here, hmm. um, which is unfortunate. Let's see, the I don't know. And I feel I feel like I've let everybody down by not knowing exactly how many bottles were produced, but I I will tell you I I searched for a while to, to sort of figure this one out. I I bet one of our uh lovely rum heads that are out there that uh would be able to tell me. It looks like Mm-mm-mm. There were uh, 1,800 liters made. 
So just over 2,000 bottles. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's not a lot. Yeah, that's not a lot. Well, man, that's a sexy bottle. <laughs> You know who's dope? Them over there. Oh, man. That's a good one. <laughs> Karina helped us with that uh, with that soundbite. I just uh, I just want to put that out there. Uh, uh, we had a lovely evening of sending sending thoughts back and forth. And uh, and uh, that was that was a good time. Uh, I, I should let it be known that that's Karina's roommate uh, who who says that. And she won out the competition for the night. So now she gets to be immortalized on our podcast. Exactly. And I think she's she's been aborting trying to listen to that sound, but I feel like she only listens to segments. <laughs> We're going to have to like uh, hold her down and just um, like clockwork orange her, make sure that she hears it. Dude, have one of those like easy buttons that you push, but it's just her voice on repeat. <laughs> oh, so good. Coming. <laughs> All right. Time for dope follows. Karina, what is your follow this week? All right. It's call me Chaco Instagram. C-A-L-L-M-E-C-H-O-K-O. If you need any reason to fall in love with a mustache this is your man if you need any reason to fall in love with some hips this is your man you gotta check it out you gotta go down the rabbit hole i will uh confirm because you sent that to me before we started recording and i'm a fan i'm sold my follow this week is uh, Nat's What I Reckon. <laughs> Nat, G N A or N A? N A T S underscore what? W H A T underscore I underscore reckon. R E C K O N. Nat's What I Reckon. It is an Aussie bloke. Uh, he is a long haired, insane man who is one hell of a cook. And so this is his like his cooking show on Instagram and it is wonderful. In fact, he did a little bit of a crossover too uh with Uncle Roger recently. So if any of you have followed Uncle Roger on Instagram, I uh strongly suggest that you do. It's uh hilarious. Uh uh he is he is a uh, Korean uh, uh, comedian who makes fun of his uncles. It's pretty great. Um, but Nat's what I reckon is is an Aussie cook who is just a maniac and he goes all over the place, eats all the things, cooks all the things, makes it incredibly entertaining to learn how to cook and uh, and has wonderful explosive graphics while he's teaching you. So it's it's great. I strongly suggest everybody follows. Are there a lot of onomatopoeias? Onomatopoeias. I love that word. 
I think so. Oh my goodness. Well, you can all tell that I'm not used to hosting this and that it's usually Drew that leads the way. But uh, we're just going to say, you know, very happy that Drew's out there and uh, uh, enjoying his time with his with his wife. Uh, he and Caitlin have been on uh, quite the quite the health binge lately, and they both look fantastic and marvelous. And so we're uh, we're just going to wish you guys a lovely evening. And uh, I really hope that uh, this this really sets the tone for you guys. Oh, I couldn't resist. Sorry, Drew. I love you. Caitlin, you're amazing. Um, all right. So on that note, thank you, everybody. The Good Bottle Podcast is a production of Fluid Concepts, edited and researched by Chris Sinclair and Drew Garrison. Music is by two very talented and moderately handsome brothers, Leon and Chase Moore. Before we go and crush what we've been drinking, we ask that if you enjoyed this episode, please smash that subscribe button and leave us a five-star review because, well, you'll feel guilty if you don't. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Good Bottle Podcast. And if you would like for us to cover a story or if you're affiliated with a brand that wants to be featured, please email us at the Good Bottle Podcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, you can purchase these bottles we drank on this episode at the Good Bottle Pod GoodBottleShop.com. Until next time. <laughs> Cheers, babe. Thank you.